Well, praise the Lord. It is always wonderful to be away from home, but feel at home with God's people. So uh, it's a joy to, to be here uh, with all of you. Uh, if you'd like to turn in your Bible, in the Pew Bible, you can turn to uh, page 1053. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we will be in verses 1 and 2. Uh, at Saving Grace Church, we've been going through 1 Timothy, and we're coming towards the close of it. Uh, for those unfamiliar with the letter, the Apostle Paul uh, wrote this letter to Timothy, who was his young companion in ministry. And Timothy was left in the city of Ephesus in order to uh, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrines. So there were troubles in the church that Timothy needed to tend to, and with that there were many instructions that were to be given to the congregation so that they would know how they ought to behave as members of God's household. The church in 1 Timothy is imagined as a family, um, uh, the family of God in Christ Jesus, and that our behavior is to be that which is in, in keeping with what we believe about God and how he commands us to behave as his people. And so the instructions cover those things. Uh, I will read the passage for us and then pray briefly uh, before we get into it. Starting in verse 1. All who are under the yoke as slaves should regard their own masters as worthy of all respect so that God's name and his teaching will not be blasphemed. Let those who have believing masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brothers, but serve them even better since those who benefit from their service are believers and dearly loved. God's word, amen. Let's pray. Well, Father God, we humble ourselves even now before your word, not presuming that we understand all that we need to understand, not presuming that we have mastered your word, but rather coming to be mastered by you as you reveal your will to us, as you reveal your character to us, and as Christ is exalted to us as the one who redeems us and gives meaning and purpose to all circumstances of life that we might find ourselves in. Speak to us through your word now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In what ways do your circumstances need to change in order for you to live in faithfulness to God? In what ways do your circumstances need to change in order for you to bear good fruit? In what ways do your circumstances need to change in order to bring glory to God? Well, beloved, faithfulness and fruitfulness in your life doesn't have to wait until your circumstances change. And that is liberating. When God saves a person, he gives them a new identity, dignity, and status that does not depend on the world's systems for validation. The common thinking of our culture is that our life will be changed and our purpose will be fulfilled 
when our dreams are achieved. And so we love stories of people going from rags to riches, from small town obscurity to global celebrity. And this can influence our view of life. That if, that if only this part of my life was different, if only this aspect of it could be changed, if only I could reach this point with the underlying message being that if I could appear to be greater by the world's standards, then I could be more effective. Then I could serve God. Then I could do great things for his kingdom. The text we're in this morning deeply challenges many of our cultural assumptions. The main idea I want us to get from this text this morning is we don't have to wait for our circumstances to change in order to serve the Lord. We don't have to wait for our circumstances to change in order to serve the Lord. In order for us to understand what this text means for us, it helps to get a sense of what it meant for the first audience when they received it. The theme in this portion of the letter has been showing honor. So there's been instructions on how to honor the widows who are truly widows in the congregation. And then there were instructions on how to honor the elders and to doubly honor the elders who labor in preaching and teaching by caring for their material needs. And now we get to this passage of how slaves are to honor their masters. I'll explain a little bit of what that means in context. See, after Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, he told his disciples to go and do what? Make disciples of all nations. And making disciples meant that the good news concerning Christ needed to be proclaimed to all people that they might repent and believe that is to turn from their sin and place their faith in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Amen? Amen? And so the gospel message began to spread from Jerusalem into other parts of the Roman Empire. The Apostle Paul in particular was a preacher to the Gentiles, that is, those people who were not of the Jewish population, and so he was preaching the message of Christ to people living in a pagan and godless society. The Roman Empire had a social structure in place that was not built on a foundation of honoring or obeying God. And the way a society functions and is woven together, it's not easily unraveled. So in our text, we find instructions for believers who are under a yoke as slaves, or in the ESV it's translated as bond servants. The word translated as slave in Greek is doulos, and I'm, I'm not a, a language expert, so I don't tend to get into a lot of language details, but it's helpful to uh, understand the word doulos because it occurs 126 times in the New Testament. And in a translation such as the ESV, that same word will be translated different ways depending on the context. So it could be translated as slave, bondservant, 
or servant. But it's not meant servant in the same way as a word like diakonos, which we know as deacon, which would be to serve as in waiting tables, right? But this is more someone who is serving as a servant under a master. Um, And so the reason that different words are used, particularly in our modern Bible translations, is because it's hard for us to hear the word slave without immediately associating it with the unjust, inhumane, and brutal enslavement of people that took place in our own American history through the 18th and 19th centuries. Or maybe we think of Israel enslaved in Egypt, people captured against their will and set to forced labor. When it comes to those kind of situations... Paul is quick to condemn it. For example, earlier in this letter, he lists types of people who are lawless, disobedient, uh, people who are ungodly and sinners. And on that list, he includes murderers, the sexually immoral, and enslavers. That is, those who take someone captive in order to sell them into slavery. Point being, the Bible clearly communicates that trafficking in human beings, buying and selling people as property, is sin. But there were also lesser degrees of people being bond servants in the Roman Empire. It could mean that someone was officially bound under contract to serve their master. This could even be a situation that they entered into voluntarily. Maybe rather than putting in an application at Walmart if they needed a job because they didn't have an inheritance or a a family line of business that they could tend to, they might go to someone on their property and offer themselves in service in exchange for having a place to live and food to eat. So it's kind of like a modern-day employee, but still much different than that. It is estimated that slaves or bondservants made up roughly one-third of the population in a city like Ephesus where Timothy was doing his ministry. So this was a large contingency of the people in that society. And in many cases, you'll find that the slaves or bondservants were actually considered a part of the family or the household unit in the place where they served. They lived in the home. They were provided for. They had responsibilities within the home or on the property. And this becomes clear in Paul's letters where he gives household instructions because he will address husbands and wives, fathers, children, servants, and masters, all under the rubric of household instructions. So it's not that Paul or the Bible, for that matter, is endorsing the practice of servitude that was already in place within the Roman society. But rather, if bondservants did represent one third of the population as the gospel was being preached, some of them were becoming Christians. What were they to do? Rebel? Run away? Was Christianity to come through and overthrow all corrupt cultural practices within the Roman province? Well, Christianity certainly challenged many of the cultural norms. And Christians often paid in persecution for that disruption. We read in Acts when Paul first came to Ephesus, his preaching was threatening the wealth who made their living 
making shrines and idols. See, how a society functions is very complex. If Paul's goal was to come into these pagan cities and to dismantle their economic structure, not only would he have been shut down as one who was already being imprisoned for preaching the gospel, but if even if he was successful, the society would collapse based on its interdependence. For example, in Portland, we have a large homeless population. There's no easy solution, and the church can't come in and offer quick fixes. We can bring the gospel, though, into broken societies, that even homeless people might become a member of the family of God, have their sins forgiven, and then be cared for by the members in the congregation. In the end, a bondservant slash slave in the cultural context that we're reading here they were considered property of a Roman citizen. Though they could often buy back their freedom, they could not freely leave their area of service without consequences. So rather than initiating a bloody revolution, Paul comes along bringing dignity and value to the most vulnerable and lowly of society. Even in unjust circumstances, his instructions encourages bondservants that they don't need their circumstances to change to begin serving the Lord. And this is huge. They didn't have to wait for the culture to change. They didn't have to wait for society to change. Their status might be considered lowly in the world, but before God. They were now his child. They had a new identity and a new status that didn't depend on their life circumstances. From a worldly vantage point, they likely had no inheritance, thus why they became bondservants or slaves in the first place. But now they had an inheritance kept for them in heaven. There's some promises that when set to the backdrop of your circumstances become even sweeter. Think of the paraplegic considering that one day they will have a glorified body. And among God's people, you had this new situation that these bondservants were not considered lesser among the congregation, but equal. That in Christ, All believers are one, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, heirs according to the promise that things that would divide people in society, now Christ united those people within the church. And so as you read Paul's letters, doulos or slaves are personally addressed in many of them. There's instructions in 1 Corinthians, in Ephesians, in Colossians, in 1 Timothy, in Titus, and in his shortest letter, Philemon. Though their earthly status or circumstances didn't change when they were saved, they now had a new purpose. They could obey their earthly masters, not just to prevent them from being harsh, not just as a matter of worldly wisdom, but rather they could serve as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. 
that their service and work was to be done unto the Lord and not simply unto man. These kind of instructions are are best conveyed in uh, Colossians. And I'm just going to turn there briefly to to read this. If you'd like to turn there yourself, you can find this uh, Colossians chapter 3 on page 1045. And I'm going to read verses 22 and 24. Verse 22 says, Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. Do you see how liberating this is? Do you see how refreshing that would be to someone in those circumstances to recognize that there is now purpose to my station and situation of life? Even if society looked down on your status or didn't value your work, even if your circumstances don't change, your perspective does. You are serving the Lord Christ He is your master. You have a heavenly reward to which the treasures of this world could never compare. We don't have to wait for our circumstances to change to serve the Lord. Going back to 1 Timothy, look with me again at verse 1. All who are under, chapter 6, verse 1, all who are under the yoke as slaves should regard their own masters as worthy of all respect so that God's name and his teaching will not be blasphemed. Here are instructions being given to believers who are under a yoke as slaves. What does it mean to be under a yoke? If you take an egg from the fridge and hold it over your head... Uh, it didn't go over that well. That's okay. Uh, no, a, a yoke was a wooden beam normally used between a pair of oxen or other animals that to enable them to pull a load together. To be under a yoke is to be under a burden. They were bound in service to others and their circumstances included heavy labor So what are believers to do under those circumstances? Well, when we come to the text, the answer is surprising. It says regard or consider their own masters as worthy of all respect. To honor in this case would be to respect them. And this would give expression in their speech, in their attitude, in their work performance, Oh, friends, we can say we exist for the glory of God. But the rubber meets the road in a statement like that when our life circumstances are different than what we would choose for ourselves. 
We often think freedom would be detaching from all restraints, but instead being in Christ brings dignity and purpose to all stations of life. What I love about this is the motivation for showing honor. It doesn't say consider them worthy of all respect or all honor so that they will also treat you kindly. That might very well be the case, but it's not guaranteed. We are not guaranteed that if we are faithful to the Lord, that others will treat us well. We have the Lord Jesus as our example. He committed no sin. He did wrong to no one, but wrong was done to him. But here we see that there's this this higher purpose, not just for the benefit of ease of circumstances, but now regard your master as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be blasphemed. See, the conduct of the Christian is directly connected to the known reputation of God in the world. The conduct of the Christian is directly connected to the known reputation of God in the world. This is so much of what we think about of what it means for us to be a church, right? The way in which we behave as believers reflects upon our God who has brought us together and has saved us. When a person becomes known as a Christian, especially among unbelievers, people's perception of our God and what we believe will be shaped by our conduct. When he says the teaching not being blasphemed, the teaching is often shorthand for the apostles' teaching, which is really just shorthand for the proclamation and application of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, there's a negative side to this, and that is that on account of our conduct, the name of God and the teaching can be blasphemed. That is to be reviled, to be slandered. People will say, if that's how they act, if that's how they behave, who could their God possibly be? What could he have possibly done? As a Christian, some people's impression of God of the Christian faith, and of the teaching of the Bible is vested in your conduct, how you live. And so the assumption here is that we have a a believing slave with an unbelieving master. Likely why the text says that they are under a yoke. It is not a favorable circumstance for them to find themselves in. Can you imagine a believer in this situation recognizing their their newfound freedom in Christ saying, I don't need to listen to my master. The Lord is my master now. Maybe they start getting lazy with their work or snarky with their attitude. The unbelieving master might not know much about Christianity But if the attitude displayed in his servant is what Christianity produces, then you can guess what his impression of it might be. But instead, as believers, we are called to do what is honorable in the sight of all. 
And so the servant within the circumstances in which they were saved now has an opportunity to be a witness to their unbelieving master. See, so often when we think that in order to have influence, we have to be in a position of power or authority, we see in the Bible that many saints have been in situations under authority, yet having influence as a witness to Christ to authority. Imagine a child being raised in a home where their parents are not believers, and yet that child becomes a Christian. They're still under the authority of their parents, and yet now they get to be a witness to their parents, to Christ. And so they were to do so by revealing the change that Christ has produced in them. And so they have even more motivation to be gentle and respectful in their disposition, to work at whatever their task is with focus and integrity, because now they do it unto the Lord. See, God will use us as witnesses to people that we ourselves would never choose to be witnesses to those people. It's not that the Bible is commending the social structures that exist. Paul tells slaves in 1 Corinthians that if they can obtain their freedom, they should. But even if they can't, the good news for them is they can still serve the Lord. And this is encouraging for us. Because what if faithfulness was only possible if the society that we lived in became just? What if faithfulness for us was only possible if the society that we lived in became just? Well, since we live in a fallen world, in many cases, that means faithfulness wouldn't be possible. But here we learn that we can change even when our circumstances don't. As Christians, we are being transformed into the likeness of Christ in the midst of a fallen world and a crooked generation. As a Christian in any circumstance, we are free to serve the Lord wholeheartedly and obey him. And so within a local congregation, say like Saving Grace Church in Milwaukee, Oregon, or Bethany Baptist here in Bellflower, we all, as members of a local church, are equal before God in Christ. Yet that doesn't mean we all play the same roles or enjoy the same life status. Some of you are employees. Some of you are employers. Some of you are retired. Some of you are students. Some are husbands. Some are wives. Some are children. There are different tax brackets and life, life circumstances represented in this room and within each of our life stations we are likely one of the only Christians that some unbelievers know personally the conduct of the Christian is directly connected to the known reputation of God in the world it's not that God's glory depends on us God is who he is but for those who don't know God, what they do know about God, they learn from the Christians they know. 
And so we each have unique opportunities to adorn or to beautify the doctrine of God in the eyes of those who don't know God. This is a mindset we must put on as parents in the home, as employees at work, as family members, as neighbors, as friends. Our identity is in Christ, not in what we do, but that doesn't mean that we don't care about what we do. Our identity in Christ frees us to serve wholeheartedly. We don't have to wait for our circumstances to change in order to serve the Lord. Now we get to verse 2. Look with me at verse 2. Let those who have believing masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brothers, but serve them even better since those who benefit from their service are believers and dearly loved. Here we see that the gospel changes how we regard all relationships. The gospel changes how we regard all relationships. Still referring to slaves, now Paul speaks to those who have masters that also got saved. Imagine how complex that might become for both parties. In the congregation, they are equal before God. Family in Christ, yet they also have this other aspect of their relationship, slave and master. And we might be quick to say, well, just get rid of that relationship. Yes and no, in the sense that, okay, I'm going to still need to provide for this person or else if I send them out, they would need to enter into a new situation because they likely didn't have the resources to just go buy a piece of property themselves. So maybe now in this situation, the slave could think, I no longer need to work so hard. They might begin thinking critically of their master, even looking down on them. Or maybe they become jealous of their master. Yeah, we are both in Christ, but they are wealthy and I'm so poor. Envy, jealousy, things that do not fit well with the fruits of the spirit could start giving expression within this relationship. This jealousy or coveting, it could cause them to no longer want to work for the benefit of another. Why should I? They're the ones that benefit from what I do. Have you ever been in a situation where your labor benefits someone else more than it seems to benefit you? It builds up their reputation rather than yours, builds up their wealth rather than your own. The gospel changes how we regard our relationships. Throw jealousy out and now rejoice. He's saying that your service benefits another believer. If serving the Lord and adorning the gospel was a motivation to serve under an unbelieving master, doesn't having a believing master give all the more motivation? And it's quite beautiful, and you can see how this plays out when you consider authority and relationships where the one in authority is not to domineer over those in their charge, 
And then the one under the authority is to give that honor, to give that submission willingly and voluntarily. Think of even being a congregant in a church with your elders. If the elders domineered over the congregation, said, respect what I say, obey my teaching. Well, yeah, we, we, we would need to teach you what the scripture says. But now it's that you would, from your own heart, seeing the commands of the Lord, seeing his wisdom would say, I want to do that, not because someone is forcing me, but because I want to do what honors God in this relationship. It's beautiful. And this change in relational dynamic is conveyed in the shortest of Paul's letters titled Philemon. Uh, it's very beautiful and personal, and it's, it's something that's great to read later on today, maybe this afternoon with a friend or with another member of the congregation. Read that letter together and see what Paul's instructions look like in the relationship between Philemon and what appears to be his runaway slave, Onesimus, who has now become a brother in Christ. The major concern in all of this is that the honor of the name of God and of Christian doctrine should be a priority for us as believers. That is our responsibility in all circumstances. See, confidence in our status before God enables us to perform lowly service for the benefit of brothers and sisters. In our congregation back home, we don't have a budget that enables us to hire a staff to do things like the janitorial work. So we have members who on a rotating basis sign up to clean our toilets. And when I see members serving in that kind of way, it blesses me. One, because no one else sees them doing it. But two, it is such a, a, a subservient task to take on. It is a washing the feet of the saints um, and it is done to the glory of Christ. The conduct of all Christians in all situations and circumstances should be aimed at bringing glory to God. We certainly do not want to behave in ways that bring reproach to his name or to the gospel. And this affects who we are as citizens, as husbands, as wives, as parents, as children, as employers, as employees, as residents. We are to appropriately submit to the lawful authorities in our lives, the only exception being when someone is requiring us to disobey God's word or to compromise our commitment to Christ. As we consider identity, I want to drive home the, rea the, the relevance of the gospel in all of this. Beyond social status, in a very real sense, the gospel teaches us that everyone is a slave. Jesus says this in John 8, verse 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. People living apart from Christ might feel as though they are free, free to do whatever they wish. But the reality is they are a slave to their sin and sin is a cruel master because sin leads us to death and condemnation. 
What Jesus does is sets us free from slavery to sin. How did he do that? By coming and dying on the cross to loosen us from the chains of our sin by giving us forgiveness through his blood and victory so that we could be free to serve the God who made us. And when a person trusts in Christ, they are not only free from slavery to sin, but they also become a slave to Christ, a servant of the Lord who bought them. With his blood shed on the cross, he bought us and we belong to him as our master. And Jesus is a good master. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. And he is making a new creation where all injustices will be done away with. So who is your master? Do you feel chained down by your life circumstances? Do you imagine that you could serve God faithfully if only these things could be changed? See, when someone becomes a Christian, it fundamentally changes their identity. Even if someone is a bond servant when they are called, they are now a freed man in the Lord. Yet at the same time, those who are free when they are called are now bondservants of Christ. And this is how the apostles referred to themselves in their letters. Peter, Paul, and James, they would refer to themselves as doulos of Jesus Christ, servants or slaves of Jesus Christ. And this teaches us that we don't have to grasp for power or status but can serve God right where he has us. If you're a believer in Christ, your life is infused with great purpose and you bear the name of God wherever you are and wherever you go. God will bring us to places and put us in circumstances that we would never choose for ourselves in order that we might be witnesses to Christ there. There are believers right now who are in prisons and they are witnesses to Christ there and praise God that there are witnesses there. Just as we aim to send missionaries to places where the gospel isn't known, God sends us out as his people to be witnesses among people who don't know him. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ? What brings purpose or meaning to your circumstances of life? What is your hope? What are you looking to that is helping you to get through whatever you're in? See, we are all slaves to what we obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or the obedience of faith, which leads to righteousness. The change we need in this life is not primarily circumstantial, but relational. We need a change in our relationship with God. And it's only through faith in Christ, the risen Savior and Lord, that we become adopted as God's children and sent out into the world to bring glory to God through our transformed lives. Even when our circumstances are hard, 
not just like hard, but like really hard. Hard like a slave being beaten by a cruel master. We read in 1 Peter, it is better to suffer for doing good and to identify with Christ, to share in his suffering, to have intimacy with him in that kind of way, knowing that we also share in his blessings, in his righteousness, and in his resurrection. Are there circumstances in your life that you wish you could bypass? You can serve the Lord and be faithful even in your suffering. Even in less than ideal circumstances. And God can use that to show off his grace in your life to others. As Peter picks up in this, I thought I would turn to it, picks up on this in his instructions to household slaves. He says this in 1 Peter. Submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and the gentle ones, but also to the cruel. For it brings favor if, because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. For you were called to this. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. God's word encourages us in any circumstances that we might find ourselves in to look to Christ and to recognize that we can live as his servants right where we are. You don't have to wait for your circumstances to change in order to serve the Lord. You can serve the Lord right where he has you. He will prove himself faithful. May that strengthen you to walk in faithfulness to him. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Father God, we thank you for the dignity that your word infuses our lives with. God, that even when others might look at our circumstances and say, how can they say they're blessed by God when they're going through that? 
But God, we often look to material prosperity as a sign of your favor when really it's a wrong measurement scale. But it is the way that you sustain your people in the face of trial, in the face of suffering, that we would have joy in seasons where there's no joy to be found apart from the reality of what you have done for us in Christ. That we would continue not returning evil for evil, but instead returning evil for good and doing that simply because we are mindful of the Lord's example to us and the goodness that he has brought to our lives. That when we were your enemy, O God, Christ the righteous died for us to bring us to you, that we might be your people and then live for you here in this fallen world as witnesses to Christ in all circumstances that we find ourselves in. Help us to do this well. Help us to serve one another as we uh, often need help in seeing your hand and receiving wise counsel as we face things that cause us to sometimes want to doubt you, God, that cause us to be tempted to just want to run away. But instead, God, your word teaches us how to be steadfast, even as your love for us is steadfast and unfailing. Shape us as your people in these kind of ways that we might be witnesses to Christ and that you might use us to lift up his name, that others might be drawn to you for his glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.